you know, if someone else decided to write a book on this, it would be great because every generation, every like few years, whatever, needs new storytellers and new interpretations and new lenses and new questions. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Altarescu, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before we get to today's discussion, let me mention what I've been reading. I recently finished Leadership in Turbulent Times by the incomparable Doris Kearns Goodwin. She describes the personal crises and monumental challenges faced by Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson, and how each prevailed by relying on an understanding of history and a respect for history, in addition to relying on their optimism and remarkable work ethic. The obvious differences from the current occupant of the highest office of our great land go unsaid, but this is another in a long line of great ones by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Now for today's episode. I was introduced to our guest today, Alexis Coe, by my daughter, Melanie. Welcome, Alexis. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Melanie and Alexis work together at The Wing, which, as I've mentioned in a prior episode, is the rapidly growing work and community space for women. I think rapidly growing may be an understatement. Explosive growth may be more accurate. Alexis is a a historian, author, host, commentator, consultant, and a producer at the History Channel. She's the author of the narrative history book, Alice and Frida Forever, A Murder in Memphis, which we, we will be discussing today. And as a consultant on the movie adaptation of the book, is this still going to be a movie? Yeah, I just got the third iteration of the script, and it's casting in a couple months. Oh, that's very a, exciting. That, that is very exciting. Alexis is also working on her second book, You Never Forget Your First, biography, a biography of George Washington. I read Ron Chernow's Washington biography some time ago, and I'm anxious to read the Alexis Coe version when it's published. Alexis is the in-house historian at The Wing, where she delivers monthly lectures or panels on women's history, and where she hosts The Wing's really great No Man's Land podcast. One episode of her podcast, titled Four Women, One Devastating Allegation, discusses four historical figures, Alice Mitchell and Frida Ward, who are Alice and Frida, and Barbara Gitlings and Kay Lehusen, who were gay civil rights pioneers and partners for nearly 46 years. Alexis, I've barely scratched the surface of all the projects you're working on. You have an extraordinarily, extraordinarily full plate. I enjoyed reading the book, and I enjoyed listening to Four Women, One Devastating Allegation. And I love that you pretty much paired a podcast with a book, which is really great. And I'm glad you're here to discuss both of them and and the ways you've, the, the various ways in which you're telling this particular story. One review of the book referred to you as haunted for years about the case of Alice and Frida. Tell us about the book. Tell us about the genesis of the book and of the podcast, if you will, and tell us whether the case of Alice and Frida has actually been haunting you. Interesting. I think that it was definitely needling me for years. I found Alice and Frida's story when I was in grad school um, really early on. I was getting a master's in um, American political history, 
And I thought, um, what is this case that sounds really interesting? And it was just sort of mentioned as an aside, as sort of an anecdote. And then it, it was buried in this academic text. I had already committed to um, a topic, citizenship, between World War I and World War II. And I also, at that time, really early in my academic career, thought that I would surely be a professor and nothing would doom tenure like studying women and studying women and something that could even be, you know, described as a love story. And so I sort of abandoned it. And then um, years later, I ended up not going into academia and I was a curator at the New York Public Library. And I proposed an exhibition on on same-sex love, and, and they weren't that into it. Ironically, now they have a, an exhibition up about Barbara Giddings, and they just released a book. Um, so there's an exhibition right now? Mm-hmm. At, 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 at 42nd Street? Mm-hmm. At the, at the Schwartzman Building. Right. And uh, what year was it that, they, that you thought they would not be interested? Um, I think that was around 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to get friends who were in publishing to, you know, take on this book. It was also just not the time it seemed for it. Um, and then when I left the NYPL and I had um, six months to spare, I was sort of playing around with writing and I had been asked always to write catalogs and um, panel texts and such. Um, and then sometimes, you know, write speeches for the president and um, word wait, wait, got which around. Which president is this? Uh, Leclerc. Oh, president of the library. Yeah, yeah president <laughs> of the library. Yeah. Um, and it was... I I'd sort of had, uh, you know, I'd been encouraged a bit, but I didn't think of myself as a writer. And then I was approached and offered a book deal and asked if I had anything in mind. And the thing about Alice's story is I had sort of quietly been researching it that whole time when as if I wasn't like researching enough in my right. life. I have, you know, tons of access to archives. Um, it has one of the greatest, the NYPL has one of the greatest collections in the world. And so I started looking up newspaper articles, contacting people and just sort of thinking, okay, well, if someone's interested in it, I've got, I've got it, I've got it ready. Um, and over time, I, I started to notice that it, it coincided with the rise of, of yellow journalism during the 1890s, which meant that um, there were little errors. So like, let's say someone's name wasn't consistent or Alice would be described as, um, you know, a, a, the daughter of a plantation owner that I knew that wasn't true. Um, and then I just started connecting the dots and looking for consistencies. And so by the time fast forward to, you know, four or five years later, when I'm offered the book deal, I've got practically all the research done. That's amazing. So then I just went to Memphis and had like a really great time. Um, but otherwise I was really ready to write it so that that experience of writing a book was, is so very different than the experience that I have now. There's also just a limited, amount of material when you're studying women versus say George Washington yeah. or really any other man that um, is is viewed as historically significant women are often viewed through something that makes them famous so like a scandal in Alice's case or um, as domestic witnesses so Martha Washington for example is a domestic witness to George Washington not really viewed as a fully fleshed human in her own right just as someone who was there so you mentioned you that's fascinating, and the difference is fascinating. You mentioned you were approached with a book deal. How, how did that come about? 
Well, I had, um, I was raised by my grandparents and they were passing and I was um, their health, you know, caretaker. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had a few months in which I was sort of, you know, taking care of them. And I would go to, this is sort of, it's such a funny story. I would once in a while escape and go to an exhibition and I chuckled at something I saw and the person next to me said, what are you, what are you chuckling at? And I said, the, the, the panel text is all wrong. <laughs> and he said, why? And I explained it. And then he said, great. Um, our, our exhibition critic is out on maternity leave. I am here. I'm the editor. I have no idea what I'm doing. Do you want to just write this exhibition review? And I was like, eh, f- fine, whatever. And so I wrote it. And then um, a couple months later, uh, an editor from The Atlantic contacted me because apparently in this like local weekly, which was the equivalent of The Village Voice in California, um, owned by The Village Voice at the time, uh, had been reading me and liking my stuff and had passed on my name. So it all happened really quickly. So, you know, I, it sort of didn't, it didn't. I mean, I had a graduate degree. I had yep. this whole yeah, career. Yeah. But then um, I ended up writing for The Atlantic within like three months. And then Amazing. I had a book deal within six months of being, you Nothing know, to out it. there. <laughs> Prospective authors are going to be cringing. Well, I think that the, the lesson there is always... Um, Something that actually my agent says where I, I would sometimes say, oh, I got lucky. And and he would say that's so dismissive of, of the work that you've done, which is that you make your own luck. And so whenever you're really passionate about something, you should you should really go after it as, in every way and not really think that it's necessarily going to turn out to be something um, and and just keep pushing in, in this way that's really earnest, and maybe someone will maybe maybe someone will recognize it. Maybe something will come of it. If you want to write, write. Exactly. And just keep writing. I mean, that's the whole thing. Just do it. Yeah. Just put yeah. in as much work harder than everyone else. That's always the key. Yes, absolutely. Now, yeah. now back to your first book. Yes. So tell us about Alice and Frida. So Alice Mitchell was uh, 19 at the time that she came on the national stage. Um, and she had murdered her same-sex fiance, Frederica Ward, who was 17, and they had met at Miss Higby's School for Girls. And that was definitely the hook for me. I, I read that. I'm from California. I went to school in New York. I knew nothing of, you know, the middle states except, like, places to ski. And I drove through once on a cross-country you know, trip with a friend. Um, and so the, the idea of Tennessee, of Memphis, was so foreign to me, which is hilarious to me now because I've spent so much time in Memphis, Tennessee, <laughs> many, many times, including one one trip for the podcast on Ida B. Wells. Um, and then for the movie, movie, the, the movie adaptation, I also um, have, have gone there quite a bit with the screenwriter who is the director of The Babadook. Um, but I, to me, the South was just um, sort of garden of, you know, midnight in the garden of good and evil kind of thing. Great like book. Thick, thick air, yeah. um, race things that I didn't understand, low-level tension. Um, and I started reading about the, I started reading these headlines and immediately I was gripped um, about the case because 1892, and they're, they're really like struggling to describe what, what same-sex love is. And so they're saying like, Alice was the man or like a man would do. Is this do. in the newspaper articles? In the newspaper yeah. articles. Um, and the newspaper articles weren't in like small little weeklies in, in Memphis. I mean, they were, but they were also the New York Times, the San Francisco Call, which was essentially the Chronicle before the Chronicle's inception. Um, and yet in 1892, it, like after the case um, was re- resolved, I, massive air quotes here, um, 
it disappears. And and that was immediate. I, it took me a while to figure out why. How could this have been this national obsession and then disappeared just with the quantity of newspaper articles? And then I realized it's because Lizzie Borden to, took an ax to her <laughs> dad and stepmother. And that was such a more palatable case versus like this thing that they were really struggling to describe. Um, and so Alice, of course, admits it because this is completely premeditated. There were tons of love letters between the two. So also there was so much fun, you know, whenever there's a, a primary source like that, it's great. Yes. You're just reading about someone's affair. Um, it's really like high gossip. You know, some people have People magazine. I have, I have people's love letters. <laughs> and um, I it was premeditated. She admitted to it. There were witnesses. It was it was in broad daylight that she she, um, you know, took a knife to to Frida's throat. Um, and yet her father that night was like, OK, but this doesn't make sense. You're saying you killed her because you loved her and wanted to marry her. The word lesbian is still 40 years into the future. They're sort of talking about it in Europe. There's, of course, Sappho. Um, there's there's well, French what, what novels. Sappho um, is uh, from Greek myths, uh, the Isle, Isle of Lesbos. So, right. so it wasn't a totally foreign concept, but it sort of was. It was in the realm of literature. Um, some of the, the newspapers said, well, maybe she got her hands on French novels. I wish she did, <laughs> because then she would understand that this was a thing. But I, I really, truly came to believe quite early on and haven't been dissuaded from this, that she thought um, she was the only one in the whole world who felt this way besides Frida. And that was a part of this insanity that came about to a certain extent, because you have to be insane, you know, or at least have a momentary um you know, lapse of, of, of sanity in order to kill someone, um, unless you're a serial killer, and that's like a whole other right. thing. And so, um, and so she admits to this, and her father, who is affectionately called Uncle George around town, he's this, this furniture store owner, he's beloved in the city, um, he says, okay, well, this is clearly insane. And so he goes out and he hires like the best men in Memphis, um, you know, these lawyers who, who do go um, to be like ambassadors and, and governors and such. Um, and a young lawyer on the case is actually goes to ends up being the governor and then a senator. And um, these are all, you know, well-to-do white men in Memphis. And um, he creates this defense and and the, the trial itself takes – you know, just a couple weeks, but it doesn't go on for six months because Judge Dubose, the judge who's put in charge of this, he loves attention and he quickly realizes um, the AP wire had been um, around since the Civil War. So this is 1892. And uh, this went out and everyone like got on a train and came to Memphis because, of course, no one had, you know, even like had anyone stationed nearby. Why would they? Why would reporters go near it? And he expands the courtroom in order to accommodate it. And also for the first time in this courtroom, in any Judge Dubose courtroom, uh, women are allowed. And women are allowed because this is a moral tale. It's not a moral tale as far as, you know, and you're like, well, if she, I don't understand. This isn't, she's not being tried for murder. This is an insanity. Um, in fact, it's not even a trial. It's an inquisition. How is this a morality tale? It's. It's about what happens when mothers don't take care of the one job they have, according to men. The fathers are treated like they are victims as much as as Frida. Amazing. The mothers are blamed constantly and, and just, you know, 
dragged through, right for, through for the not cold. not bringing their daughters up properly. Yeah. Not, not, not steering them in the right direction. And the, I guess Miss Higby's got off easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, there was this idea that you could transmit insanity. So Uncle George, this guy, you know, who hands out this, this plea to his daughter and these great lawyers, he also had put his wife in an insane asylum after each birth. Um, and, and there was this, this idea that she had purple insanity, which, which is basically we now understand to be postpartum and that could happen very easily. A, a man in, you know, from, I don't know, like the inception of insane asylums could put their wife in an asylum, um, his wife in an asylum. If he, if she didn't want to have sex right away after giving birth, if, if she was a little bit sad, if, um, breastfeeding was challenging, in, in the case of, of Isabella, his wife, um, Alice's mom, she she had, you know, he sounded awful. I mean, I would I would have been depressed being married to him. <laughs> um, but she also like had had really hard births, it sounded like. And then she would several times she buried she buried several children. She would go into the asylum, the asylum and she would come out and the child had died because the child hadn't been breastfed because of whatever had happened while she'd been in there. Uncle George did not take care of the children. No, of course not. And then of course and then she would be depressed and he would put her back in. So he he this was a a, a thing he knew worked. Yeah. Um and so the 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 struggle, though, is how do you prove this thing that nobody really understands? How do you how do you prove that that Alice is insane? And the, the insanity inquiry was to avoid her being charged with murder. It was to avoid being hanged, which being probably hanged, yeah. never would have happened, yeah. um, because we've 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 hanged very few women in our time. Um, you know, you have to go to like the Lincoln assassination and sort of lawless San Francisco during the Gold Rush era to find these sorts of instances. The Lincoln assassination. Um, you you have like a you have the first time even that being on the table. Oh, you mean at that time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, as a as a response to the assassination of a president. Yeah. Um, and so it just doesn't happen in America, but but certainly it happens all the time in the South to men who are charged with murder. And, well, um, black men in particular. Yeah, and this is lynchings. Um, this is also, this coincides with, with Ida B. Wells' realization um, about lynching. It sounds obvious to us now, but it was really quite a moment of genius in 1892 for a 29-year-old Ida B. Wells to say, hey, this doesn't seem to have anything to do with raping white women. And also, why would a black man come nearer a white woman it's pretty much guaranteed he's going to be lynched if he even looks at her um maybe the white woman is is inviting him into the relationship and and white men are just really angry about it and that ultimately was also really interesting about this case is it's it's about the turn of the century it's about all these different tensions going on in the south but going on in america um the women will have the right for vote to vote soon. They're clamoring for it already. Modernity is there, race relations, everything's sort of happening, and all these tensions are, are pouring out into these cases in which there can be some control over whatever white men feel like they deserve control over. And the Civil War has just ended, uh, just not too long before. Decades before, but it's like, yeah. in, it's like it just ended. It's still like it just ended in yeah. the South. Right, and, and that's true. And so, so the power of white men has d dissipated considerably. Yeah. Uh, because they've lost their slaves, they lost the war, and this was a, a way to exercise some modicum of, modicum of control. Yeah, and again, Judge DuBose, founding member of the Tennessee Klan.
Um, and so, yes, yeah, so the, there's the insanity trial and then how do you prove this thing? And so they come up with these totally, you know, uh, a therapist spends, um, you know, a psychiatrist spends five minutes with Alice and they come up with the most bonkers justifications for this. So they say, well, her face is not symmetrical. Nobody's face is symmetrical. If they, I mean, unless <laughs> you're a model. <laughs> why is that relevant? Yeah. Um, left-handed. Well, my husband's left-handed. He's pretty sane, I think. <laughs> Um, you know, she meant to commit suicide, but forgot. She certainly didn't forget as, as things turned out. Um, so they were just like reaching for whatever the butcher testified and said that he once called her a tomboy and she didn't gawk. Um, maybe she didn't like him and didn't want to respond to like weird men talking to her. <laughs> oh, and this was the best part. This is, I think I, I would put my reputation online. This is the origin for the stereotype that softball players are lesbians yes. because one of the justifications was that she played on the softball team. Ab absolute. Clear. She didn't start it. She just joined it and she wasn't even really, she was like JV. She was benched most of the time. So I don't know what the influence was there. I love that. And, and yes, there is that uh, theory today yeah. <laughs> women who play softball. It actually, that was what was weird about it is the more I read about this 1892 case, the more I thought, well, how did I grow up sort of like understanding these stereotypes in the 80s in L.A.? Yeah. So um, you did research for a long time uh, because maybe there would be a book. Uh, then the book presented itself, a book deal presented itself. You continued with the research, including uh, many trips to Memphis. Um, and you went, but you, it, it's not a straightforward book. It, 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 I love the book. It's not, it is dissimilar from most of the other books I've read, both in the, well, in the style in which it's written. You talk about that a little bit. At the time, because I, I didn't really think you know, because it had been, no one had seemed that interested in publishing the book before, you know, it was approached. Um, I I felt as if, you know, I don't know who's going to read this. I don't know if anyone will read this. I don't know. I'm just going to tell this as, as I as I really want to. And at that point, because I had been so immersed in this very visual way of telling history, because I had worked as a curator in the exhibitions department, department at the NYPL, and because I had spent years just looking through newspaper articles, I really wanted people to get a physical sense of what it's like to be in the archives. I feel like it's so unfortunate when you read a history book and there are a ton of end notes, but you don't get to see anything. You, do, you just you read block quotes and you hear about a really cool pen or letter opener or whatever it is or someone's historic home. And, and like maybe you take a, a trip out there if you're really motivated, but otherwise there's this disconnect. And I think that um, I, I, especially when there are love letters involved that, that seem so relatable to the present, even though they're over 100 years old, that to deny people the opportunity to read them themselves would have been, um, it would have been cruel. And so I hired actually um, Sally Clan, who is a, um, a, the little sister of my best friend from grad school, who's now Mary Klan, who's now um, a PhD graduate from, from UCSD, who just very recently defended her dissertation. And uh, again, like, I, I mean, this was this was a real risk. And, and the publisher was like, oh, OK, but you have to pay for that. And I said, fine. And I came to like a very nice deal with Sally. 
And um, Sally was 22 at the time, you know, so she was just sort of happy to be involved. Um, to, to do the illustration. Yeah. Amazing. And she she listened to, you know, my my vision and, and was like the easiest person to work with who I've ever worked with. And so it does. It has the love letters in there. It also has physical um, things that were that were put up then during the trial, during the Inquisition. So there are they exchanged rings. And so the rings themselves are illustrated um, there's, there's the, the transformation. Alice had a whole plan. They were going to elope. Yes. Um, they were going to move to St. Louis and she was going to dress like a man, somehow grow facial hair, which, which shows you just, these girls were so naive, naive, immature. Yeah. All of the above. Yeah. I mean, their, their world was so small because yeah. it, you know, I said before, like, I wish that they had read French novels. They were given the Bible and a, a woman's book that reinforced the Bible. And basically the, the tenets were like piety, submissiveness. They, they were taught not to really think. So this was all like they were fans of things, um, of performances, of the theater, of anything basically that came through town. And so this was just so such a, such magical thinking, really. Um, but I wanted people to understand the transformation. And so I had, you know, an illustration where, where Alice looks like herself and she's wearing, you know, a, a corset and the whole nine yards. And then she's wearing this suit and she suddenly, her name's Alvin. Um, and so, yeah, so physically I, I, it does look really different. I also, um, wanted it to be a book that people would read who maybe ne weren't necessarily into history, um, but were sort of into the idea of, of the, the story itself, whether it was a, they considered it a love story, which I, I don't think that I really do, um, or they considered it like a true crime story, even though we know what happened. Um, I just wanted it to be something that everyone could come together and sort of draw their own conclusions and hopefully disagree. Um, and, and so that's why it looks the way it does. And then the story itself lends itself easily to a more narrative style. And so I think I was given a real pass there. Um, and I managed to get in these, these ideas of modernity and these ideas about women's roles during this time. Um, and, and, you know, it, it seemed to have worked. I think so. I think you've captured it all. I recently read a book called The Luminaries by Eleanor Caton. It's a 2016 Man Booker Prize winner. It's over 800 pages and really terrific. But having said that, on the cover and maybe in some of the reviews, the book is referred to as a parody of a 19th century novel. And I felt that your uh, book was, um, wasn't a parody, but it was written in an old style or a style I would expect to be an old style. Uh, and I think the the illustrations were wonderful. Um, I loved I loved the the letters that were recreated, and the way that was done. It just it, it added texture to it, and so I thought that was great. Thank you. I think it's nice too because like you don't really understand how it happens. You know, I can tell you that that Frida was beguiling, but she was capricious. Um, and I can tell you that Alice was in love with her and sort of struggled with her um, issues of commitment. But unless you read the back and forth along with that um, sort of context, I just don't think that you can really feel the same way. Like I've had emotions I wanted other people to feel as I was reading them. Like sometimes I was really into it and sometimes I was so mad at them. Yeah, I, I was mad at them most of the time. Yeah. I... I uh... Uh, because I, I felt as if they were so young, and um, I, I, I didn't 
think about the fact that they hadn't read uh, French novels and, and such, but they were young. They were they were um, uh, part of a it's such a closed upbringing. They didn't know the world, and and to think she could dress like a man and make a living in St. Louis, obviously. And that their problems would realistic. disappear. That yeah, they would they move there. I mean, yeah, they. I mean, they hadn't really left like Memphis. They had been to Gold Dust, this this up and coming town, you know, up the river, the Mississippi. But otherwise, they hadn't. They hadn't been to Nashville. That was that. <laughs> that's crazy talk. So this idea of like, how do you get to St. Louis? How would they? How I mean, Alice had had actually squirreled away quite a bit of money, um, enough to at least get them there, but. She's going to work. What's she going to do? She has no skills. The Higby School for, for Young Ladies is basically a glorified finishing school, and she didn't seem to have an aptitude towards anything. She didn't really seem to have any interest besides Frida, but we don't actually know that because um, the thing with women in archives is is it, it you know, we only know what happened during this time. We don't know who she was before, um, don't really know who she was after. And Frida, what she she's going to be at home. She's going to she's flirty. She's going to be like excited um, if you know, and she's going to be making Alice just as jealous as ever. No. But being a man, I think, wasn't just supporting Frida, and it wasn't just um, getting a job and sort of like the most practical solution to this. I think it was also that she understood that men controlled women. And if she was a man, she could finally have Frida behave the way that she wanted. Amazing. Amazing. So uh, we know Frida was murdered. murdered. Mm -hmm. What happened to Alice? So this is interesting. Um, the way the story goes, according to the newspaper articles, um, she uh, died of consumption, which is like a catch-all term. It could be anything. Um, and when I was researching... In these were actually in this was in the, the state archives in Nashville. I noticed that there was um, in in the patient roles of the asylum that there was suddenly this 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 uptick in in yellow fever. And Alice had promised she had written out like ways to kill myself during the Inquisition. She was she was the most consistent of anyone during this entire time. I, I believe it's funny, you know, you always want to believe and not believe your source, but but honestly, you could just believe her all the way through. She always yeah. told the truth. <laughs> and uh, one of the ways she said that she would kill herself is drowning. And she had tried almost everything else on the list and somehow been thwarted. And so um, five years into her stay in Boulevard, the asylum, there's this yellow outbreak fever, fever, the yellow, the, the yellow fever outbreak. And this was all around the South. It really like devastated Memphis. They're, they have a great um, Elmwood where both the girls are buried. There's a whole section on it. It's a really like fantastic cemetery. They do a great tour. Um, <laughs> and so they also were warehousing patients. So it was a fairly new facility, but it, you know, you could stick anyone in there. You could see if someone was suspected of being gay, if, if, if someone was, um, had gone into debt and they didn't have room in the prison, they stuck them in an asylum, like whatever you could, it was an easy place to get in, an impossible place to get out. It was as good as a death sentence. So my belief is that, um, so that, so this, as the story goes, she slipped into um basically into a water tank how does one slip into a water tank that's sort of the obvious yeah. first question 
Um, I was pretty sure that what had happened is she had spent five years trying to figure out a way to kill herself. And when there's some this like pandemonium in the asylum because everyone's just dying, she can sneak out, go to the roof, drown herself, which was one of the ways she had planned on doing it. My second clue was I found um, an interview with someone who had been basically, um, you know, an assistant lawyer on the case who had, who had, you know, gone on to be really successful. And he said just fleetingly in a retirement, you know, 40 years later in a, an interview when he was about to retire and they asked him about his early cases. And he said, well, you know, she killed herself. And that was the only instance in which that had been said. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting, but I can't really say that. So I present both of them in the book. And then a couple years ago, I went to a documentary film festival. And there was a film about Memphis. But Memphis during MLK's time, uh, about the sanitation workers' mm -hmm. strike, which is, which is how he happened to be in Memphis and got right. assassinated. And, um, and I ended up talking to this guy after the director and I said, I've spent a lot of time in Memphis. And he asked why. And I told him, he said, in, in such a casual way, it's so, it's so Memphis, it's so Southern. He said, oh, yes, I'm a descendant of Alice Mitchell. Wow. Now, I have been wow. waiting for this moment. <laughs> wow. I have been waiting for this moment for years. The book, this happened in like 2016. The book came out in 2014. I went on a book tour throughout the South. And every time I was like, someone's going to come up to yeah. me and say they're a descendant. I got something wrong. Like, they're going to take issue. They're going to, you know, someone's going to say some sort of slur. Like, something's going to happen. Nothing like that ever happened. <laughs> and no one contacted me. And a part of it is, um, you know, they're Southern. So this family who who were descendants of them, just they read it. This woman who appears in the episode that you mentioned, um, four women, one devastating allegation, uh, she picked it up in a bookstore and she knew immediately that this was about her family. And she just heard the story oh, yes. like once in college from her mom. It was it was it brought shame onto their family, not necessarily because of the the affair, but because um, the whole family went bankrupt trying to pay for these fancy lawyers. She called it the tragedy. Yeah. yeah. It was a tragedy of their family. Um, and I I and it's so interesting now to think about their family the way that I understand them, because now, you know, they're librarians and filmmakers and, you know, <laughs> all, yeah, they've really had, they've come full circle. So then I got in touch with their family and um, they told me little things like that, that I didn't know that, that you could have found, you know, in the archives. This is what happens later that the family went bankrupt, all of these things. Uh, but I, the, the biggest piece of information was that, um, that, that the story in her family, you know, she asked her mom like three questions and then she didn't want to talk about it. I'm amazed in the South she even got those three questions in. And one of the questions was, you know, how did she die? She said, well, she killed herself. She, you know, in the family, they never had this second version of the right. drowning. It's that she killed herself. Yeah. And that was it. She didn't even know until my book how she had killed herself, right. how she had committed suicide. And so that was confirmation too. And that was amazing. And I was able to... Um, tell the, the screenwriter that and so now this both the fear of being hanged which i didn't really understand was was so um in, you know so such a big fear for the family that they thought it was realistic because of course you know now i think well surely they knew no other woman had been hanged at the time and it was going to be fine um and that that she definitely killed herself um, in this way and that she was just waiting for this moment those two things will be in the movie that's so and good. so that's really exciting and just i think the idea of history um you know 
that, that it can have so many lives and that stories can have so many lives. And so, you know, it was frustrating me. I'm the only one who's told this story, but now it's it's gone in all these different directions. So the podcast episode was based on just the epilogue of this book, right. something I thought wouldn't be that interesting to people, which is like the what happened after, what, what happened with this information, this like landmark case, if you will, um, in which this idea of same-sex love was was, you know, thought of by doctors for the first time in America. That led to the podcast episode. Then there's going to be this movie, which is kind of a prequel and kind of more of a love story than I would ever do. But I very much respect it because, I mean, I don't I don't know them. They were real people in the yeah, past. Yeah. Um, but it is really exciting. And I think that, you know, if someone else decided to write a book on this, it would be great because every generation, every like few years, whatever, needs new storytellers and new interpretations and new lenses and new questions. That's wonderful. That's that. that it brings us full circle. We <laughs> talked about the writing process, and now we finish with the writing process. That's really great. Let me ask you the question I ask everybody else, which is, tell me what you're reading. Are you reading anything currently? I'm reading a lot of George Washington stuff. Yes, um, of course. And then I just finished Leadership by Doris Kearns yes. <laughs> as well. <laughs> it's a pretty good book. Yeah, and, and she and I are also working on this um, History Channel series on George Washington that's coming out in 2020. Um, doesn't have a title yet. Uh, and it's I mean, it's wonderful. It's really, really wonderful. George Washington. So I, I, I think of your your George Washington book as a feminist perspective, but I think, as you mentioned, maybe the best way to think of it is the first female biographer of George Washington in over 200 years. Yeah, I, I always joked that, um, I mean, it's not, it, you know, I have to joke at it, but I... I, I I have this conversation often with people where they ask me, you know, what do you, what, you know, what do you do if I'm like going to the doctor or something? What do you do? I'm a historian. What do you, what does that mean? And then I'll say I'm writing a book on George Washington. And then inevitably it'll, usually a male doctor will say, the marriage, his mother, <laughs> About some did he have children, <laughs> his daughters? Um, and, and they're like really struggling to understand and I always say, no, just like a but like a regular biography, a presidential biography. And then they'll say, oh, like Doris Kearns Goodwin, because <laughs> you know, yeah. she's the example. Yeah, yes, you hope so. Yeah, I mean, she, my goodness, yes. Um, and I, I, there have been women who have written about obviously a lot about the marriage and, and certain approaches. There's a book uh, about um, how he got his title, His Excellency. Um, you know, and then President Excellency during the Revolution, President later. And there have been different approaches, but comprehensive biographies have always been sort of the domain of, of men. And the the way I even came to write the, this book was out of um, was also kind of accidental. I hosted a podcast for Audible called "Presidents Are People Too," and it was about all the presidents. And I I I love presidential history. I find it fascinating. And when it came around to the George Washington episode. I read Chernow, I read Ellis, I read all all the greats, and uh, greats and bestsellers, let's say, because I don't think some of them are so great. But I thought it was weird the way they all started out the same. They all said, you know, he's too marvel to be real, and like, oh my goodness, he's in our our pockets, but not our hearts, and <laughs> how how you know he doesn't have photos like Lincoln, and like he's not as like terrible and wonderful as Jefferson and blah, blah, blah. And they would like bemoan it. And they would say, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it differently. And then they would proceed in the exact same manner. And they would sort of say the same anecdotes. And I, I, I never got close to him. And I also felt like the focus was strange. Like there's so much focus on how he's this great 
um, physical specimen and how he's like a great um, general and these things. And, and we know this. So, like, why do we have to, to dwell on it? Like, why not sort of talk about other things that were going on in his life or, like, what that actually was like? Like, what's – why are we just um, genuflecting in his direction? And so I just I, – I found myself also, like, complicit in this this thing that I just had to kind of, like, write, which, you know, is has at times seemed to me completely crazy over the last few years, certainly, as I've, I've tried to do this. And it's like an incredible, you know, it's I could spend the next 50 years writing this book, but, you know, like it's coming out in 2020. <laughs> and how long will that have been from start to finish? If you can find out when you started. You know, that's always a difficult question to ask because like with Alice and Frida, how yeah, long did yeah, it take yeah. me to write? Six months, but how long was I working on it? Years. This one has been, um, I think I got the book deal in 2016, started working on it. So four years. Yeah. Oh. Ernest 2017. Um, and then I'll finish it. You know, you finish it before it comes out. I'll yeah. finish it um, by June. Um, I have to. I have another yes. due date coming. Yes, you do. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so I, I guess it'll, it'll, it, I could spend a lot more time, but yeah. deadlines are good for everyone. Well, well, so more importantly, the, and then maybe we should finish on this note, the, the perspective you bring to it, just, just looking for a different perspective. You, you've surveyed the landscape. You've seen what people have done. Some of you love, some of you love less than, than that, but you're finding other ways to tell the story. And it's interesting because you tell Alice and Frida uh, through the book, through the podcast, through the movie, maybe others will do the same. Telling the same story different ways mm -hmm. is uh, a way to tell the story and, and finding, finding new, just as you did with your, uh, the revelation of a, of a relative, uh, adding to the story as you go on. I hope so. I mean, I, I also hope that people will read the Washington biography who um, don't read what I call dad history. They they are not necessarily, um, you know, naturals for, for presidential biographies. They think they're sort of big. They think they're boring. They think they're written by old white men. Um, but I think that there is this urgency. Certainly, I, I didn't expect it to be so very timely. But I think there is this urgency and there's this thirst to understand the presidency and there's no way to better understand it than to start from the beginning and to understand that like it was literally molded after this guy yes. and his restraint and and also times where he wasn't so restrained and over time we've had to sort of correct course none of this was ever supposed to be set in stone none of the founders thought that they were perfect men they were well aware they weren't they were actually yeah. very very sensitive about the press um, and so it is this evolution, and I hope that what happens is people understand this, and they also look at presidents, and particularly Washington, less as like this weird monument, and um, less as as also um, as a role model, and and more as just a historically significant person who we can hold a couple things at once about, because you know he owned hundreds of people, but he was also oh, like. Yes you know, made our nation and we need, we can't ignore one because of the other. And so we really need to understand it to understand our country and, and why we're still kind of in a lot of the similar situations. More on that when we get together in 2020. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you. Wonderful. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. Our website also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. 
Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And, of course, Carol is my muse, as well as my affiliate manager. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests. Thanks also to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments, either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.